This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dina Malandraos. Thanks for listening. Today I'm speaking with Anna Pujaner, who is the co-founder of Mayo, an architectural office based in Barcelona. Mayo's work is notable for an interdisciplinary approach to practice, as well as a focus on new models of collective housing, which includes a recently completed 22-unit housing block in Barcelona. I'm also very pleased to welcome Anna to Colombia GSAP as a newly appointed professor of practice, where she's coordinator of the Core One Architecture Studios. I'm excited to speak with Anna about her work and plans for curriculum development at the school. Thanks for joining me today, Anna. You always, uh, you often mention uh, that Mayo was started soon after the crash, the economic crash in Spain, and there were, it sort of sets the practice into uh, a certain tangential kind of mode where you really kind of design the practice, even physically, in terms of the, how you work together and um, this beautiful office space I've seen images of. And I wanted to kind of, uh, we, you know, we talk a lot about designing practice and, you know, in this podcast and wanted to get your thoughts on how one launches, uh, you know, a practice kind of out of the debris uh, of uh, a kind of economic collapse, let's say. Uh, hello, Amal. Thank you for um, this talk today. And uh, definitely, I'm really happy to be part of the school now. And, uh, well, it's a good question to start with. Um, yeah, we started the office in 2012, and uh, it was quite a conscious decision. At that time, I was just involved. Uh, I was just uh, teaching and involved into research, researching and then due to the economical crisis that not only happened in Spain, it was a global crisis, as you know, we suddenly we had the, you know, the aim to, to, to start a new practice that could uh, redefine how architecture was operating until then and, um, as kind of an answer to our social context. So I went back to Barcelona and with a group of uh, people that I admire, not only from architecture but also other disciplines, we got together and uh, you know, took a place to work collectively. And uh, what the first thing that we did was to design a 12 meters long table that we could all gather and, uh, and share our work. So suddenly, thanks to a quite a specific format, a quite a specific uh, architectural tool at the end that is, was this uh, long table, a way of working was design, design, design. and uh, somehow the table not only defined our way of uh, working but also our way of how we understand architecture. Uh, you, so, so you wanted to kind of redefine how architecture operates? and So of course um, the fact that we were all sharing the space at the end, it uh, allowed us to also share the work. So this interdisciplinary relation happened in a quite a natural manner, as well as uh, an horizontal hierarchy. So in our uh, office, basically, we rearrange uh, working teams depending on the nature of the project in a permanent manner. And at the same time, we start talking about architecture from a specific perspective that was related also with the table. We start talking about our practice as uh, an operative uh, studio that deal with formats, instructions of use, orders, in order to allow things to happen. To the point that sometimes we use that um, 
let's say, kind of a philosophy of work, uh, just uh, in a non-material manner. So our projects can just be totally unmaterial in the sense that they can be even a sentence or uh, writing a piece of paper, almost, you know, with a lack of materiality, to uh, a huge uh, building that we, for instance, built and finished like a year and a half ago. So we understand architecture from this white uh, material uh, perspective. It's very interesting to... Uh, to think about it this way in that uh, the content is always there, but the form takes many different forms and from uh, pop-up research installation project to exhibition design to um, kind of drawings. And I, you know, I wanted in particular uh, to hear you talk a little bit about that incredible housing project in Barcelona because uh, it's very, rare to, we're hosting a conference on housing, uh, but from the perspective of design uh, um, this this fall, and it's really interesting to see housing um, becoming no longer just a site of um, policy, finance, uh, social equity, etc., but a kind of a, a young generation of architects reclaiming design as a as a possible as a possibility um, through housing, and certainly you did that uh, through that project. Yes, definitely. Our approach towards architecture is also um, embedded with uh, research. So we are research based. Uh, we are a research based practice, and that's uh, that happens because I was coming from uh, the academic world, but also because when we start the office, we won the competition to run the magazine Quaderns of, uh, it's the architectural magazine of the Architecture Association in Barcelona, in Catalonia. And that uh, growth alongside the office. So we start this, both projects at the same time, the office and the magazine. And somehow we do, we started to value um, um, more, you know, the theory, the theoretical part of architecture as uh, a tool to build. So that's why most of our projects are uh, quite conceptual, because we do value um, um, what the aim of the project, the concept of the project, the theory that it's embedded with the project. And uh, in the case of the housing, we've seen the beginning, we tried to establish a link between the research that I was personally doing um, about kitchenless houses um, here in New York in the 19th century, a research that I started here at GSAP, uh, years ago, to how to link that knowledge with a, contempor a contemporary situation. So how to bring an historical perspective uh, to nowadays and how to bring a theoretical approach to a practical approach. So uh, from that uh, research, we, um, we start valuing the idea of uh, building uh, houses that could have a diffuse limit, so that could grow and decrease its size through time. That was a characteristic that happened in, in this kitchenless typology here in New York at the verge of the, of the century. And we thought it was uh, a powerful tool to answer contemporary needs. Uh, so we uh, start designing a type of house that could, uh, through addition, uh, addition and subtraction of rooms, could expand through time. And that's why, um, among other ways of explaining the project, the, the 22 uh, housing project that you mentioned before, we also call it 110 rooms, mm -hmm. because it has uh, nowadays 110 rooms that can be arranged and rearranged through time and set different types of, of uh, 
typologies. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to, well, two things. I think it's um, the idea of rethinking living um, is kind of taking hold, certainly here, uh, well, certainly in Europe, but even here, um, you're starting to have uh, the equivalent of we work, you know, co-living spaces that are, you know, starting to emerge. And but, but rarely does it have such immediate kind of conceptual, architectural uh, uh, sort of consequences. And it's very interesting um, uh, to hear about your research on the kitchenless uh, house and the, and and wanted to hear more about the kitchenless city, uh, which is the title of your upcoming book uh, 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 of you know for which uh, the research you did here um, as a visiting scholar many years ago. So, tell us a little bit about about the book. So yes, the kitchenless story. It's um, it's I. Uh, um, it's a nice story because everything started with uh, my admiration towards uh, Deleuze New York chapter uh, dedicated to Waldorf Astoria. And uh, at that time, was I was deeply fascinated by that building, the fact that uh, it hosts uh, different apartments on the towers that are served thanks to this hotel service uh, that... Uh, so those towers are on the hotel and the hotel serves... Um, um, the kitchenless apartment above, and I thought that was a fascinating typology. So I came here at GSAP to research about that building specifically, but when I start uh, pulling the rope, I realized that uh, it was not the only case, that I I could find hundreds of uh, buildings that operate in the same manner, and I discovered that, meanwhile, Rem Kul has explained it as an extraordinary um, example, um, it is extraordinary in the sense that um, it's it's luxurious and definitely it's unique in its case in itself. But definitely the typology per se, the the kitchenless house with collective services, it was quite common at that time. Mm-hmm. So thanks to amazing the amazing advice that I received uh, from the professors here. Um, Jorge Otero Pilos, Andrew Dolger, Enrique Warga, and others, they were of deep uh, help at that time. I could, uh, I could push the research further, and uh, I left the Waldorf Astoria apart a little bit aside, and I focused on this rich uh, field that I could find here in Manhattan at that time. So that's how the Kittula story um, happened. And uh, for me, it's also a tool uh, to provoke at the same time a conversation that can go beyond the New York uh, case. And it's about uh, the kitchen itself. And uh, with the research, I also wanted to uh, turn visible an actual reality that uh, has been built um, through the 20th century uh, around the kitchen. So the values that nowadays we have towards the kitchen, they were not there in the 19th century. And the kitchen definitely has been used as a political tool during the 20th century and became the center of our so-called homes uh, when it was not uh, like that at that time. So uh, to live without a kitchen is definitely a a provocation to start a conversation about how uh, the idea of comfort can be redefined uh, in a permanent manner and how architecture also can be a tool uh, to to rearrange that. And sometimes it can be as well a political tool. Political in the sense of the gender and labor relations that it set up. Exactly. And so now through kind of 
undoing that relationship, we can recast a new new set of relationship through architecture. Exactly. Uh, also through the idea of kitchens living and uh, and shared kitchens and putting on the table uh, the discussion in in relation with home labor and domestic labor. Uh, that unfortunately uh, lost its uh, value during the well, it went on, it, it gained other values, but definitely lost its economic value during the 20th century. And I put that on the table in order to uh, to understand that architecture can also have an impact on domestic labor, and it's able to redefine it as well as redefine gender roles. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, kind of bringing you back. Right, you're coming back through that project, coming back um, also to New York uh, now with a new uh, lens. And I, I recognize a little bit of delirious New York in the core one <laughs> um, sort of syllabus, uh, the idea of this kind of cross-section, uh, uh, you know, across Broadway. And you mentioned that you took a tour with the with the students and the faculty yesterday on two double decker buses and had presentations and so it's you know it's it's nice to have someone who's looking at the city still not so much from outside i mean we're all new yorkers but from this kind of intellectual or historical or disciplinary outside of kind of rediscovering the city uh, as an object of of study of interest and so what has changed? What is the same? Or, or what are you trying to extract uh, from New York again, let's say, in terms of what the students are going to look for in this first semester? As uh, I always I always quote Kubler because I, I'm a great fan, and he, he has this, uh, he came out with this uh, uh, idea of history as something that can be in permanent change, and it's always it always depends on our contemporary perspective. So definitely, New York always changes because it's through our eyes that we are looking at it, and uh, and that's why I I thought it was really powerful to start um, an architectural uh, master's program looking at the close context and looking at uh, the city uh, from the architectural perspective. So, uh, of course, we start from New York. That's an obvious uh, reference, and uh, but it's been already 40 years yeah. since the book was published, right? So we cannot deny that our perspective has a shift and change. I'm, I'm probably sure that Ram Kulhas would agree with that. And uh, so, how the way that we're looking at uh, to our um, um, New York, to our contemporary New York, is that we are understanding it as a fragmented reality not that much as a set of buildings on a grid, but rather as a set of fragments that are interconnected, thanks to um, many reasons, but among others, uh, the new digital landscape that allow us to have uh, um, an, an easier access to indoor spaces and private spaces that we lack before. So how the public space is being redefined uh, through that, um, it's one of the key questions that I'm asking to the students. So it's a research-based project. So we're looking to our contemporary reality and try to understand how the digital platforms and our digital landscape, it's redefining the way we understand private public, we understand collective uh, individual, and we understand the public and the domestic. 
What's interesting is also, of course, our tools have evolved, and so I think the students are invited to use digital tools and drawing techniques and videos and new ways of making models, etc., to make those fragments and those relationships visible. I, there's a real right you have you're setting up a whole agenda for kind of representation or to reclaim let's say that project it's definitely the most important is uh, the point of view of the student uh, his or uh, her critical position towards something more than the information itself um, the information it's more accessible than ever it's not that uh, it's not difficult to find of course it demands an effort but it's uh, also easy to share so I, I ask the students to share as much as they can because what value is uh, not the information per se, but rather how they do uh, understand it and build on it. Thank you, Anna. It's really a pleasure to have you and I'm excited to see uh, what bubbles up. Thank you. Thank you, Emma. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.